watchers in the fourth dimension. Don't! How dare you oppose the might of Mandraga! You humans have got such limited little minds. I don't know why I like you so much. Oh, you craven gutted curs! He's but one man! Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And sire, let me punish this insolent dog. This episode, the three of us kick off the legendary season 14 with a trip to Renaissance Italy in the Mask of Mandragora. Because we're recording a little way ahead of releasing new material, we don't have any mail. But we do love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments and questions. And if you've listened to our previous episodes, you will know that we do try and read them out on the show. So please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D, or you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. Very rapidly moving on to our behind-the-scenes segment, this serial has its origins in producer Philip Hinchcliffe deciding that it was time for the show to return to the past. While script editor Robert Holmes personally disliked historicals, he believed they were often tedious as well as a strain on the show's budget, Hinchcliffe talked him round by reminding him of the success of his own Pyramids of Mars in the prior season. Good for you, Phil. Hinchcliffe felt that a similar blend of science fiction elements in a historical setting would be a great way to start the new season. Hinchcliffe found inspiration in the 1964 film adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of Red Death and decided that Renaissance Italy would be the perfect setting for this serial. Holmes met with Lewis Marx, whose contributions to the prior season, Planet of Evil, had been much appreciated by the production team. <laughs> God knows why. <laughs> that being said, Holmes also believed that Lewis Marx would be perfect for the brief, as Marx held a defil in Renaissance Italian history. He also previously contributed the scripts for season 2's Planet of Giants and season 9's Day of the Daleks. Marx quickly got to work on what was initially called Catacombs of Death, and he drew inspiration from other sources from that time period. The Mandragora Helix was named for Machiavelli's 1518 comedy La Mandragola, with an L rather than an R at the end. Hieronymus was named after a man by the name of Girolamo Savonarola. Apparently Hieronymus is a Latinate version of Girolamo, or Girolamo, I guess. <laughs> Giuliano and Federico were likely named after Giuliano di Medici and Federico da Montefeltro. I'm butchering these Italian names, I apologise. And Scarlatti and Rossini were named for the Italian composers Alessandro Scarlatti and Giacchino Rossini. Meanwhile, while Marx was working on the scripts, the production team was busy working on contracts for our stars. Tom Baker was formally contracted for the 26 episodes of season 14, along with an option for season 15. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Sladen informed the production team that she wanted to leave the show relatively early in the season, and so she was contracted for just the first eight episodes. As the scripts progressed, Rodney Bennett was chosen as director, and for those of you wondering where we've heard that name before, he had previously directed The Ark in Space and The Sontaran Experiment, both from season 12. Bennett wanted to film abroad to emphasise the Mediterranean feel of the story, the BBC being the BBC said, hell no, we don't have the budget for that, and sent them to Wales instead. <laughs> Hinchcliffe suggested using the village of Port Marion, which had been built in the style of Mediterranean architecture and had previously been featured as the village in the iconic show The Prisoner. Joining Bennett on our behind-the-scenes crew, we have Chris Doyley-John making his debut as production unit manager. Now, he's not a newcomer to the show. He started as an uncredited assistant floor manager on season three's The Ark before becoming a fully-fledged production assistant on various serials between seasons four and 11. 
We have designer Barry Newbury returning to the show for the 12th time. He first worked on season one's An Unearthly Child, which makes him a true OG of the show. Speaking of returnees, costumer James Aitchison returns again for the seventh time. And as a reminder, he would go on to work on Time Bandits, Brazil, and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, and will ultimately go on to pick up three Academy Awards and a BAFTA. (laughs) What a guy. And last but not least, of course, we have Dudders returning to provide incidental music for something like the 40th time. In all (laughs) honesty, I've sort of lost count at this point. By the time that filming started at the beginning of May 1976, the serial had been through a series of name changes, having become the Doom of Destiny, which is a little bit of a nonsense title, really. And then Secret of the Labyrinth. Various alterations were made to the scripts along the way, including the addition of part three's subplot in which a hypnotized Sarah tries to kill the Doctor. I know we're going to have things to say about that when we get to our discussion. On May the 12th, 1976, Elizabeth Sladen's departure from the show was announced to the press. And the very next day, she and Tom Baker recorded Doctor Who and the Pescatons, which would be released in July 1976. And you can check out our bonus episode from a few weeks ago to hear our thoughts on that. Meanwhile, Marx's story briefly became known as the Curse of Mandragora before finally settling on the Mask of Mandragora. And thank God for that, because I really do think the Doom of Destiny is a kind of shit title. (laughs) During the break in production between seasons 13 and 14, the TARDIS exterior prop had totally collapsed. And so Barry Newbury designed a new one that premiered in this story. He also had the opportunity to design a new TARDIS interior, as Hinchcliffe had concluded that the one introduced in the previous season was too big and cumbersome. Newbery created a much smaller set, taking influence from the classic science fiction author Jules Verne, using a wood-panelled look. It featured a much smaller console with no oscillating central column, which was something that Rodney Bennett was apparently incredibly disappointed about. Scheduling turned out to be a bit up in the air with this story. The original plan was for season 14 to debut at the end of October 1976, This was soon moved forward to September the 18th, before ultimately being set for September the 4th, with this serial taking up four consecutive Saturdays and the final part being broadcast on September the 25th. Due to the increase in criticism of the previous season from people like Mary Whitehouse, the new run of the show aired a little later in the evening, with The Mask of Mandragora screening at 6.10pm, 30 minutes later than episodes of the previous season. And yet, this still isn't the last we will hear from her. (laughs) Yeah. And with that, that wraps up our behind the scenes segment. So, Julie, we move into the short summary, which is with you this time. One household, not alike in dignity. Uh, no, no, wait, wait, wait a second. When the moon disappears and the world's gonna end, that's Mandragora. Uh, <laughs> all right, sorry, y'all. Still a bit rusty there. I'm just gonna go regular here this time. At the beginning of the story, It seems like we may be getting something just as crazy as the mind robber, but alas, we were all mistaken. Enter in the age-old classic, an uncle who wants to kill his nephew so that he can take over. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Not only that, we get what was once a defunct cult coming back from the woodwork, or catacombs, in order to call on the old god Demnos, who will instill them with superpowers. But really, they basically shoot electricity out of their fingers. Poor Sarah Jane gets relegated to damsel in distress after a season of kickassery, but hey, it seemed that Giuliano followed her around like a lost puppy, so there's that. And I find it just a little bit odd that the doctor is so on board with a party when the world is about to end, but as expected, the story ends with the uncle dying and the cult being thwarted, and the world is safe yet again. Until next time. All right, let's talk about it. And I noticed something very inane that I know you guys probably did not notice. Are you talking about the font? 
The font. Yes. The font, yes. There's a new font on the title sequence. <laughs> I like it. What's so strange is I didn't even notice it until the ending credits. <laughs> I didn't notice it at the, <laughs> at the opening credits. It's just a little more gothic. Yeah, I dig it. It's one of those where I noticed it and I'm like, eh, and moved on. Speaking of more gothic, how about that TARDIS second control room, huh? I love it. Well, it's not even the control room because first you pass the boot cupboard, which looks like a parlor. Right. <laughs> not a boot cupboard. So that was lovely. I like getting to see more of the TARDIS. That was great. And yeah, it's an interesting second control room with stained glass and beautiful the wood paneling. It's very, very interesting. But it's one of those situations where I'm like, does this actually work as a control room? I'm not sure. The console definitely looks very stripped back in comparison to what we're used to. Looks like there are significantly fewer buttons and there's no central column or time rotor. Hmm. which is disappointing. But I did like that apparently Pertwee's jacket and shirt were hanging up and that Sarah finds Troughton's recorder. Yes, the recorder. Some nice nods to the past there. She attempts to play the British Grenaders, but, you know, or however you pronounce that word, I always forget because British. Grenadiers. Grenadiers, of course it is. But yeah, I like that I was able to distinguish it enough to know what she was trying for. But me being the music person, yes, I can play it on a penny whistle, so yay. <laughs> I enjoyed that control room so much that I was hoping, and maybe I'll be surprised in the future, I would love for them to have a TARDIS control room more like that, a kind of wooden and stained glass, kind of a old cathedral kind of look to it would be really, really interesting. And a nice contrast to a futuristic sci-fi thing. Hmm. Hmm. We'll see. Yes. Interesting. So let's talk about this Mandragora Helix thing, which first off looks like, I think it's a drain with soap. Yeah. I was going to say, down the plug hole. <laughs> down the plug hole. It's a toilet with that blue treatment and white plastic beads and they press flush. That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. It's hard to believe we're not so far off of Star Wars. Right. And what's funny about it is I couldn't help but think while watching that that once again, this would have been probably acceptable if this was in black and white, <laughs> or maybe just a lower resolution. It would have been a little bit harder to make out exactly that you were staring down a toilet. You would have, <laughs> could have been taken away and thought, maybe this is some sort of object in deep space. And yet, when we actually somehow land on the helix, I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. Julie, you already called to it. It feels weird in a mind robber kind of way. And I also got web planet vibes as well. Mm -hmm. But then you hear the laughter and then suddenly you're like, oh, yeah, this is definitely more mind robber than web planet. And I was super excited about it. Oh, I was same like, here. oh, the ground doesn't look like normal ground. The helix turned more crystalline. And I was like, oh, things are going to be changing. And this is going to be great. I mean, the doctor was a little bit rude when he said, you stay here as if Sarah Jane was a dog. <laughs> but... <laughs> The echoing stuff was really good in there. And then eventually we get to Italy. Right. Yeah, it feels like an abrupt cut mm -hmm. going from this kind of weirdness to Renaissance Italy. I very much had a line that said, how are we going to connect these things? And I have to say, I'm okay with that kind of abrupt change, but... I have to emphasize how disappointed I was and not getting a very abstract episode like the Mind Robber or Web Planet, something just purely on a soundstage, you know, sparsely decorated and just absolutely weird would have been wonderful. But 
we get a period piece on location in Wales, which I will say now the setting, the sets and the costumes were fantastic. They did a great job on that. Fantastic. And I think they still could have used some of this Renaissance and Italy and everything. But if the entire first episode could have been abstract mm. and then dive into that, I think you could have you know, done something with that. But just getting five, ten minutes and then let's move off. I was very sad. It's interesting you say that because it feels like there's a very deliberate attempt to try and evoke the early show mm -hmm. in this. I mean, they've brought back Lewis Marks, who wrote in season two. They've shown Troughton's recorder and doing an entire episode probably would have slowed it down a little bit. But also giving it that kind of division that you saw in something like the Space Museum, where you mm -hmm. have a weird abstract episode and then three slightly more normal ones. Or even The Mind Robber, where that entire first episode is taking place in that white void before we land in the land of fiction. So completely agree. It's the hook. It's the hook of the mystery. Use the very yeah. beginning to pull people in, and then they give you a standard story after that. And on your point, Anthony, I hate to skip ahead a little bit, but I'm going to make a claim right here. Are we sure this wasn't written by Robert Holmes? Because this feels like a third Doctor story completely. And we'll touch on those points as we get to them. But I just want to put that out front right now, because that's all I could think of watching this one. We know how much Robert Holmes rewrites everything. Right. So... Even though Lewis Marks is credited, this probably had a very heavy Robert Holmes influence to it. Sure, it felt like it. I do want to touch upon something that Raleigh said a little bit ago about the setting, the props, the costumes. I would even put forth the acting itself was all very good. I really enjoyed the characters and I really enjoyed the feel. It did feel renaissance-y, but the plot and the story just don't quite work for me. <laughs> and I know we'll get back to it as we discuss it, but with the plot, I see what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. But you're right, something's just a bit of a disconnect there. But let's talk about those characters. So very quickly, we're introduced to Giuliano and Marco. We're introduced to Hieronymus and Federico. And my God, doesn't Hieronymus just look evil? It's amazing. <laughs> He's great. And Federico, his introduction oh. is particularly funny to me. Just got to shit on the peasants, you know? <laughs> got to stop those hay deliveries, you know? How dare they deliver hay? He's like, they need to be taught a lesson. I'm like, what kind of lesson are you teaching them? What lesson? Stop tilling the fields. <laughs> stop being peasants. <laughs> Sorry. You just made me think of that, you know. Well, have you ever just tried not being depressed? Have you ever just tried not being a peasant? This definitely felt like punching down there by Frederico. And that's fine. I would say, as we discussed earlier, how we could have worked where there was a separation where you get one whole episode in the Helix, very abstract, and then we go to Renaissance Italy. Maybe we could have done that if we just removed Frederico completely, because I think Frederico could have been removed completely from the story. And you just had Hieronymus as kind of a behind-the-scenes manipulator of Giuliano. And certainly by episode three, I just don't give a shit about Federico. <laughs> right. I think he was mostly there as a linchpin. Giuliano was obviously a man of science. Hieronymus wouldn't have been there if it was just Giuliano. Oh, good point. And you had to have Federico there just so that we could have this weird seer type of person because Giuliano would have been like, uh, yeah, I don't care about you. I care about science. I'm going to get my science people out over here and let's do this kind of thing. 
I do think it could have been done. So we start out with Federico's dad having died. So the way they could... I thought it was Giuliano's dad who died. You're right. Yes. I misspoke. Giuliano's dad has died, Federico's brother. So the way they could have done it would have been to have had Hieronymus in the employ of Giuliano's father Mm. and have him still lingering after the death and trying to maintain his influence realizing that with the kind of generational handover and that generational change in beliefs, that he had to do something to kind of maintain the old ways. And that's how you could have, I think, had Hieronymus as the main antagonist and got rid of all the boring politicking (laughs) from Federico. All right, let's move on to something else. (laughs) Hey, let's not forget, hang on, I just have to give this out there, going back to how it feels like a third Doctor story here, we get a country yokel. Arguably, right as the Helix power comes into Renaissance Italy, he gets roasted. That's very Holmes as well. There it is. Speaking of weird things, did anyone notice how Sarah pulls an orange off of a tree and then just takes a bite out of it without peeling it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Who does that? Yes. (laughs) And then, of course, she wanders off and immediately gets accosted by hooded men. Uh... (laughs) And they do it twice. God. I mentioned it in my short summary, but my least favorite thing about this entire serial is the fact that last season, Sarah Jane was great. And she's back to being a damsel in distress, and I don't understand why. This is a third Doctor story. Masquerade is a fourth Doctor story. Even the fact that the Doctor fights one of the hooded men, takes him out, that feels very pertwee. Oh, yeah, right, because it's the fourth Doctor basically doing third Doctor jujitsu moves. And then let's also not forget, classically, then the Doctor gets felled by someone by using a first Doctor move with a rock in the back of the head. So a lot of callbacks. <laughs> oh, dear. And also, why does the Doctor just have a Rattler thing in his pocket? Normally, you don't carry around musical instruments in your pocket. That's not like a fife. The fourth doctor has all sorts of random stuff in his pockets. And I think (sighs) one of the novels even talks about his pockets being dimensionally transcendental. Oh, boy. Okay, so like Mary Poppins or Hermione. Okay. (laughs) Right. So he just has all sorts of random crap in there. But the orange on the end of the sword is a nice, cute touch, I thought. And then Sarah Jane is brought to our dungeon altar cult area. And I was surprised to see this was uh, actually Capaldi's first appearance on Doctor Who. (laughs) (laughs) He did look a bit like Peter Capaldi, but I do want to talk about another callback. So Sarah on the altar to me gave me vibes of demons, Joe and the demons. And the god they're going to sacrifice her is even called Demnos, which, you know, Demos, Demnos, not too far off. I was sitting there and one thing I was sad was we have this high priest who for a second there, you think the high priest is kind of all powerful, right? He's going to be the leader and then it turns out to be Hieronymus. And I wish there could have been conflict between the high priest and Hieronymus. Yeah. I think that would have been interesting. That would have added certainly more depth. But <sighs> Anthony's absolutely on target here. I couldn't help but think this felt like a poor rehash of the demons. They even put Sarah into white sacrificial Mm -hmm. robes in the same way they did to Joe. Yeah. Yeah. That said, the scenes where the Doctor is brought to the Count and he's trying to tell them about the Mandragora Helix and he just gets laughed at. But Hieronymus sees the threat here. And I love the way the Doctor mocks Hieronymus and says, all it takes is a colourful imagination and a glib tongue. (laughs) That's a great line. 
That was clearly a Robert Holmes edit, but it works so well. But anyway, the flip side of this is we have Sarah about to get sacrificed and the Count about to have the Doctor executed. And our cliffhanger is just as the executioner prepares to swing. And we're on to part two. I want to say one thing. One, there is an appropriate amount of recap. (laughs) Yes, I thought you'd appreciate that. I think every single one was like a minute. I'm like, yes, perfect. Minute mark and we get to new content. It was wonderful. I also love when the doctor is running, he uses the scarf to actually help him out Yeah, while he's running. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, perfect. Sometimes I don't think the scarf gets utilized enough. So I'm very happy to see that. I think we're going to see a bit more of that this season. But yeah, he really is a Pertwee style man of action in this when he's doing his little runner. You see him running about everywhere and jumping off of ledges and all that kind of stuff. It feels very Pertwee. And from a setting perspective, it was really here when he's running around of how great the location was. mm -hmm. And I loved it so much, like running down these hills, there's these like different caves and places. And oh, I loved it. Yeah. Why go to Italy when you can just go to North Wales? (laughs) I want to go to North Wales now. That'd be a really cool place to see. I haven't been, but everything I've seen about Port Marion suggests it's gorgeous. I really want to go. I want to point out in this, as we were talking about the escapes from our cliffhangers at the end of episode one, the escape or the rescue of Sarah Jane is done in a slapstickish way. And I feel like that is kind of a theme of part two, is that there's a lot of humor here and a lot of physical humor, particularly in this episode compared to the other ones. And I thought that was a nice touch. It doesn't necessarily mesh well with the seriousness and the dark kind of tone we have, but maybe it's used as a good contrast to kind of give us a little change. It doesn't quite work for me. Okay. There was the opportunity with that to build some tension, and the way they should have done it, in my opinion, was to do a close-up on Hieronymus's face, or his mask, as he's about to do the sacrifice. And then Sarah's gone. Right. That's the way that should have been cut. But instead, we see the doctor kind of pull her out. Right. And because we can see that whole scene, the fact that no one else there notices just feels ridiculous to me. It feels a cartoonish kind of Scooby-Doo joke. Yeah. And that doesn't quite work for me. Which is funny because, remember, there was kind of that feeling in the very first Baker story, a Looney Tunes-esque kind of humor, and maybe they're trying to reiterate that into the show at the beginning of the season? Maybe. But I understand your point. I'm okay with it if it works, and your point is well taken. It's too silly, it's too goofy, too uh, pushing the boundaries of belief. Now, a little bit different topic. I want to touch a little bit on the music. What I noticed in part one, there wasn't a lot of music. There was a lot of dialogue. There was a lot of other stuff going on, so it didn't get used much. But when the doctor is down in the catacombs, or at least down close to where the ritual was taking place, there was some really, really fun, low-read stuff that was going on when he was following the guy through the tunnels. But one thing I do wish that happened was the ritual didn't have enough chanting. (laughs) I'm with you on that. I was like, this is kind of getting boring. If they had some chants going on, and it should be in Latin, they're in Italy... One of the things I would love to hear, but no, not this time. I think in the history of our podcast, we've always been huge proponents of chanting. We absolutely have. And I agree. Put that in your story, Doctor Who. You have a sacrificial (laughs) altar, you have to have chanting. Maybe that's got something to do with the fact that 
the cast as it stands today is two Catholics and one high church Episcopalian. <laughs> I think we're all about chanting and that's how we were raised. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It also might be Mighty Python and the Holy Grail, but that's also that. the point. <laughs> we have mixed influences. We do. Well, hey, at this point, we have the rescue, or and now we have the Mandragora power coming into the altar, and now we have our using of our two evil forces or villainous forces combined. Yeah, and this is weird because it seems like Mandragora and Hieronymus have always had some kind of connection. That's kind of the hook as to why Mandragora takes the TARDIS to this time period. It isn't until much later that Hieronymus kind of realizes that Mandragora isn't Demnos mm. and they're separate entities and he starts rambling about Demnos being a subservient god to Mandragora or something like that. I guess they had to find a way to tie this Roman cult to Mandragora. It feels untidy to me. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. One thing I like is when we kind of move on a little bit from that and Federico is talking about something and despite whether or not you want Federico there, he has some really excellent lines. Oh, he does. And I really love when he's talking about Giuliano. He's like, the arrogant puppy. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a weird turn of phrase. There's definitely a feeling from him that Giuliano, despite being the rightful duke, is somehow a usurper of what Federico feels should be rightfully his. And his language really reinforces that. But it's so funny, too, because Giuliano is just such a likable guy. Mm -hmm. And he's intelligent. Obviously, from our perspective, he's very interested in the sciences and how things work. So we're all like, oh, yeah, you're on the cutting edge. You think that Earth is not the center of the universe. And, oh, man. I don't know. It's just so funny how they're like playing against each other. And like Federico doesn't carry the way. He's like, I don't necessarily think that we're not the center of the universe. I just want to rule. That's it. I admire that. uh, (laughs) That pragmatism. strength of will. (laughs) A single minded. I'm here to lead. Good for you. And while we're speaking of Giuliano, let's talk about his companion, Marco. Call me crazy. I'm catching a bit more of just a companion vibe here between Giuliano and Marco. Does anyone else pick up on that? Oh, yeah. There's definitely some homoeroticism going on there. Definitely. There is, but then also at the same time, towards the end, you can kind of tell Giuliano kind of has a thing for Sarah Jane, so I'm thinking he's bi. (laughs) You know, why not? Or at least he respects her enough to at least be like, well, if I would have to have married, it would be someone like you, but I still got Marco here. (laughs) They did that all the time back then, let's be honest. Oh, absolutely. But also, shout out to Tim Piggott-Smith, who plays Marco. This is the second of two appearances in Doctor Who. He was in The Claws of Axos. Oh. And he goes on to have quite an impressive career. I mean, he was in things like V for Vendetta. Oh, okay. He's a great actor, Hmm. so delighted to see him. That said, he is the palest Italian I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) It definitely plays an interesting kind of juxtaposition. The Doctor's initial reception with Federico and Hieronymus and being perceived as an astrologer, whereas when he finally meets Giuliano, there's this kind of clear respect between two men of reason. It really shows kind of the old ways, the superstitious ways versus the coming of the Renaissance. It's a little bit ham-fisted, but it's clearly smashing that point home. But equally... 
when the Doctor is trying to translate these higher sciences by which Mandraga operates into Giuliano's mm-hmm. terms, it does make it sound like magic and superstition. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, was also a commentary on the understanding of science and how it has evolved over time and how we perhaps perceive concepts now that 500 years ago would have seemed like magic. Agreed. It's pretty neat. Those are the pieces that I really like about this. When you get into very specific scenes with very specific cases, I'm like, oh, this part is good. This part is good. This part is good. But then as a whole, I'm like, uh, none of this like fits together. Yeah. And I really feel like if they had just left out all of the goddamn politicking, (laughs) this would have been a more cohesive story. Okay. So we're getting to the point where the doctor is, okay, we need to destroy the temple and he needs to go down there. And then Federico comes in behind and he's like, oh man, this is going to be really easy because we can make Giuliano's death seem like a sacrifice and blame it on the cult. I got to hand it to Federico. Like that is one instance where I'm like, yeah, that would be a hundred percent how you could cover up you killing your nephew. (laughs) Good job. Just the secondary benefits of having a cult located near you. (laughs) Need your nephew killed? Just call your friendly neighborhood cult. And when the doctor gets down into the catacomb or whatever, where the sacrificial table is, we get a buzzing intensifies. Ooh. Ooh. It's been a while. It has been. It has been a while. And that might just be because we haven't recorded a full story <laughs> in a really long time. Shh. But yes, love the buzzing intensifies. <laughs> and to wrap up part two, unfortunately, Sarah Jane gets <gasps> captured again. Oh, hey, guess what, guys? It's also at this moment where I realized there aren't any other women in this serial. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a uh, plus zero to the Philip Hinchcliffe women count. Uh, part three? Before we get into part three, I do like that closing line in the cliffhanger of Demnos will not be cheated of his pleasure. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that is good. I do like that. The setup of part three is actually pretty good because Sarah Jane is captured again. The doctor failed in what he was attempting to do. Juliana's, while holding his own, is still getting pretty bested because he has so many people that he's fighting against. It doesn't look good for our team. And what makes it even worse is if it wasn't clear enough that this is the third doctor story, we've got hypnotism again. Before we get into the hypnotism, I really love that sword fight. So as Julie mentioned, you've got Juliano fighting off four soldiers. Mm -hmm. Absolute mad lad. And Federico, getting increasingly annoyed at them, calls them craven-gutted curs. He's got some zingers. He's not exactly a motivational leader, but his insults are on point. So, so good. And the Doctor getting involved in a sword fight, that felt very Pertwee and maybe even kind of Hartnell in the Romans as well. Love that. One thing I do love, they get the better end of the guards and the Doctor gets Giuliano and he's helping his shoulder and the doctor starts name dropping because that's what the doctor loves to do. What I appreciated about Giuliano is he just didn't really care. (laughs) He just moved on. He didn't ask who these people were. He didn't ask any of those types of things. He was like, okay, but let's talk about what's really going on here. (laughs) And that's nice. Also that whole name dropping, that feels very pertwee as well. Oh yes. As I said, once said to Napoleon, uh, Oh, old bony. I said, yeah. (laughs) Oi. That said, that conversation between the two of them, the Doctor and Giuliano, I love that moment where the Doctor reassures Giuliano that it's okay to be scared in this situation. That was a really nice human moment between these two characters. 
is it here that we have the reveal or I guess the understanding by the doctor that the Helix chose this time and place specifically to try to prevent the Renaissance from happening? Is it here? I believe it is. I think so. And I know we've already been talking about that theme of age of reason, age of science versus superstition. And maybe it was just the time period, but it made me think of a really great film that's been forgotten about from the 80s called The Name of the Rose. Oh, I love that film. Yes. I just wanted to throw that out there. Anyone listening that likes this type of theme, I highly recommend you watch that film. Yeah. Sean Connery, adaptation of a book by Umberto Eco. It's phenomenal. Yes, it is. The book's a hard read, though. Yeah. <laughs> I know we talked about the mind control we all love so much. I <laughs> like that it was done a little bit differently than normal. And there was the sweet smelling aroma. And then there was a really shiny ornament thing that he used, which, OK, at least that was different than what we've had in the past. And it wasn't just, you know, someone like the master who could just look at them and make <laughs> it happen. So that was nice. But it was interesting because... I was interested in how Sarah Jane acted while she was under mind control, because in some cases she did as she was told to act as if everything was normal. But then there were a couple other situations, not even just the one that the doctor points out that I was like, "Uh, that doesn't seem like a normal Sarah thing to do. And maybe she has just enough wherewithal about herself to actually kind of do some odd things to try and indicate to the doctor that not everything is quite right. I don't know. I'm trying to headcanon that a little bit. Because I just find it a little interesting that the trigger for the doctor was Sarah Jane mentioning she could understand the Italian. Oh. I was like, that's a little bit of a stretch, everyone. Yeah, I definitely thought so. In this situation, why has she never said anything before? Why is it suddenly shoehorned into the story? I do like that we finally, after 14 seasons, have an explanation as to why language is never a barrier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the fact that that was the cue for the Doctor didn't quite ring true for me. Mm -hmm. A different thing I want to talk about, Frederico having his conversation with Rosini as his top guard, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. They're having a conversation and... Rosie's talking about not wanting to go into the catacombs and he says something about bat droppings twice the height of a man. (laughs) Cool, buddy. That's a visual I didn't know that I (laughs) ever wanted. Do you want COVID? (laughs) This is how we get COVID. (laughs) And then after that, Frederico then kind of turns it on his head a little bit. And first off, he calls his most loyal man a dunghead. Right. (laughs) And so then I sit there thinking... Why in the world did these soldiers turn on Giuliano when Frederico is just the absolute worst to them? He just sucks to everyone. Yeah. He's just awful. It doesn't even sound like he promised them anything or anything like that. So I'm very confused as to why. The only thing I can come up with, and you have to headcanon it a little bit, is they're all so set in the old ways Mm -hmm. that they still believe in astrology and those old traditions and don't quite trust the new science that Giuliano is interested in. I feel like soldiers don't care. Yeah, as I said, it's a stretch. (laughs) It's a stretch. But it's the only thing I can think of as to why they would side with this guy who's an absolute ass to them over someone who's actually going to be a decent ruler. But this is the point. I I even have a note in here where I say, I really don't care about Federico and his politicking at this point. Lasai. And the Lasai is in my notes. (laughs) Well, luckily, you won't have to deal with Federico for too much longer. No, but we're not quite there yet. No, we aren't. No, we are not. Not quite there. Because we've got Marco. Polo. (laughs) 
Thank you so much. At least someone else gets captured, right? <laughs> yeah, someone else gets captured, but poor Marco, just because he's friends with Giuliano. And friends. Quote. Stop doing that. <laughs> Leave Marco alone. I like to see those types of relationships with someone just so loyal. Mm-hmm. And I like that they don't go too far into the, oh, he like gave you up. It's made very clear that he was tortured to a point where he said something just because he didn't want the torture any longer. And I like that Giuliano didn't get offended by that. Because he's a man of reason. Yep. He understands <laughs> things. Yeah, no, I like that too. It's interesting how much Federico's plots just change. I mean, initially he wanted Giuliano killed conveniently by the cultists, and now he wants to expose Giuliano as a cultist. It all feels a bit desperate. Just doing whatever works, you know, whatever's presented in front of him. I admire the guy for rolling with the punches, but Jesus, dude, just give up at this point. (laughs) So now we have this scene in the dungeons. That's where we're at. And I love how it's like you get one hour to do this thing. And if not, just follow my orders and and kill these people. Hang on. Before we get there, there's that whole scene in Hieronymus's office where the doctor confronts him and Hieronymus realizes there's more to the doctor than meets the eye and says, what are you? I love that moment of realization. This is someone who is not human or more than human. But at the same time, Hieronymus is trying to keep him distracted to give Sarah that opportunity to strike. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get action, 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 until the doctor literally knocks Sarah out of the trance. And that's when the guards show up to take them. Oh, convenient. It's really well Mm -hmm. done scene. It is. And that's what leads to everyone being done in the dungeon. So now we're down in the dungeon and Federico takes the doctor with him. At least he was smart enough to know that, well, if I take him with me and he's still wrong, I can still kill him. That's actually logic reasoning, I guess. I was a little confused about Frederico's death. I somehow missed it. <laughs> oh, it's quite simple. Emperor Palpatine <laughs> used his force lightning and killed him. <laughs> but before we get too far into the death of Federico, I love that scene where the doctor basically says, look, your fucking politicking doesn't matter. If Hieronymus succeeds, there will be no dukedom. It highlights that whole point earlier in this episode where I was like, I don't care about this. And it turns out the doctor doesn't either. (laughs) It's not important. Yep. Anyway, yes, he dies. He dies from no face. Yeah, I actually like that reveal. Yeah, that was Mm -hmm. a really cool scene. Yeah, that looked really good, which was great because the Mandragora entity slash power, let's just say, was not very impressive. It looked like a... Fourth of July sparkler floating around in the air. <laughs> but to give a person, it's very abstract. It's very um, macabre and uncanny, that blank, oval, shining, whatever you would call that. That was nice. I like that. A good cliffhanger. All right, part four. Let's wrap this story up. Yeah, let's do it. Well, Frederico's done. And now we've removed that extra part that may have not been needed to be in the series at all. <laughs> Now we have our big setup of all these, I was about to say thought leaders, which is such a thought leader, so terrible. (laughs) You know, Leonardo da Vinci, that thought leader, he's going to give a TED talk later. I was going to say, let's apply modern corporate America slang (laughs) to Renaissance Italy. You know, that's the Renaissance was only possible by a group of thought leaders. (laughs) The men of learning, I guess, might be a better term. So we have our setup of our big climactic ending of 
where you got to protect them and then the cults gathering their power, but because of them being very filled with magic and mystique, they can't do it until that magic time. And the doctors got to figure out what does that mean? What do they mean by that magic time of when I believe the moon is devoured? Yes. And that's what I think is really interesting about this story is for all it talks about science, Mandragoras still works under kind of these abstract esoteric principles like astrology. It's kind of bonkers because for all of the talk about science, the driving force of the story operates differently. I do agree. But I like it saying devouring or swallowing the moon. I think that is a really interesting thing. I'm like, really? We're going to swallow the moon? It's like, oh, it's an eclipse. Yeah. That makes so much sense. But we also get this reference to the mask, finally. <laughs> and it just seems so weird and thrown in because, yes, he'd always talked about this group of individuals coming to talk science. At no point was a reference to a party. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, should we still have this mask? And the doctor's like, oh, yeah, you should totally have this mask. I love to dance. What? <laughs> I guess any kind of big state event needs its opening ball. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it feels from a plot perspective like it's out of nowhere, but it also somehow feels like it's within the traditions mm -hmm. of the time appropriately. I just wish they could have mentioned it in a previous episode. Yeah, it should have been mentioned before. But it allows us to have really just wonderful costumes and the mm -hmm. set of that main area looks great. And I'm glad that they had it. It was really, really wonderful. And I wanted to point on as we build up to that climactic scene and the doctor is talking to Sarah Jane, one particular line I enjoyed from her was the worse the situation, the worse your jokes get line. <laughs> and I really like that because... You can see that she's reading how the doctor is using humor to diffuse, and she's being able to read through that. And I think that's just a great moment there to show her being able to read through his attempts to, I wouldn't say manipulate, maybe comfort her, but to realize that I can see through that. I'm, I'm not naive. I like that. Space dad. Yeah, basically. With dad jokes. Space dad jokes. Yep. But equally, most of the time in this episode when they're together, she's just kind of following him around, sitting with him while he figures stuff out. Yeah, She has nothing to do. He literally asked her for the, what was the astrolabe? Yep. Mm -hmm. Can you just fetch me that? <laughs> and we do get to see Sarah Jane all dressed up. Oh yeah, she looks great. She gets to go to the mask and oh, again, the costuming, phenomenal. And they're just going along, but Giuliano and Sarah Jane every once in a while are just like, is this going to happen? Like, what's going on? Are we prepared for all of this? And Marco, man, Marco's just like, we're fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. He's had too much wine. Also, he looks too good after being tortured like that. <laughs> just brushes it off. <laughs> Lead makeup is a hell of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, I'm with you. He should look a little more... Um, Beat up. Kind of roughed up. Yeah, maybe make it a bit more obvious that they're trying to cover up a black eye or something like that. But no, he is a pretty boy. <laughs> he is. Very pretty. All right. So the mask gets invaded by the Brotherhood and Sarah Jane and Giuliano get captured for sacrifice again. <laughs> because how many times has that happened? This would be three for Sarah Jane. Last time she was captured and they decided not to sacrifice her so that they could use her as bait for the doctor. So they need to make up their mind. They do. You know, surely Mandragora or Demnos is getting pretty impatient oh, yeah. at this point with the lack of a sacrifice. And this is where it gets interesting. The sacrifice is starting. Ritual is starting. And where's the doctor 
in all of this, lo and behold, he's Hieronymus. Right. Was he always Hieronymus? Because there's that part where they go to get Sarah from the mask and she pulls off the lion head and there's the energy face. And did I miss something? Because then when it gets to the actual sacrifice, it was the doctor. Right. Yeah. Where is that? Okay. That wasn't just me. I, I didn't zone out for a minute there and miss something. No, there's no clear understanding of when that happened. Obviously, it's sometime between the lion mask being taken off and being down at the sacrificial table, but I don't know. Although maybe, and again, headcanoning here to try and make this work. <laughs> so you had that scene in the crypt where Hieronymus is zapping the doctor. Right. And he's wearing the breastplate that's absorbing the energy. Maybe that's a way that the energy is manifesting and being stored. Oh, I, I don't no, know. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm trying so hard let's here to not, head let's, how let's, this works. Okay, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> so this whole thing gets thwarted by the doctor because, hey, look, I was pretending. And also because before he was has baited Hieronymus at the altar, he had already done his little A-team MacGyver set up with wire. So then therefore, when the full energy comes down, it kills off all the cultists. I also really love that line that he says when he's baiting Hieronymus, where he says something like, Come, Hieronymus, you can drop all that bosh. And of course, Hieronymus Bosch being <laughs> right, right. one of my favorite medieval artists. I thought that was very, very funny. Yeah, that was a cute joke. Feels very Holmesian. Again, you can see where the edits were made to the dialogue. All right, so everyone's zapped. We cut to our goodbyes and... We try to get some salami. And he gets the salami. Mm-hmm. I don't think sandwiches had quite been invented at this point. So I question whether they knew what he was talking about when he was asking for a sandwich, but who knows? And we get the mention that Mandragora will return years later, and Anthony has Big Finish brought back Mandragora. Uh, it's either Big Finish or it was the novels, but ah. there definitely has been a return of Mandragora somewhere in the extended universe. I'm sure someone will write to us and let us know where it was. You know if they mention the possible return on the show, it will have been brought back. Yeah. That said, before we totally wrap up, I do love how Giuliano apparently asked the doctor to stay and be his chief scientist or astrologer. And there was an obvious declination there. And there was the running gag about the doctor not getting to meet Leonardo da Vinci through the story, which after all of the doctor's name dropping, I love how he hasn't actually met da Vinci and still doesn't get to meet da Vinci. I just think that's very, very funny. <laughs> It's also at this point where they talk about how Juliana looks like wistful as they're leaving. And I'm like, yep, that's the kind of hint that I was like, okay, I think he was interested in some form or fashion with Sarah Jane. Maybe he's not interested in Marco and it's an unrequited thing with Marco. <laughs> Could be. Maybe Marco is gay for Juliano, but Juliano is not gay for Marco. <sighs> Alas, we will never know. Well, that brings us to the end. Before we go ahead and give our scores, do you think that we should assign some camp count points for Hieronymus? If any, I would, I'm only willing to give a 0.5 on that. He wasn't that much. He had too much of the dark wizard magician kind of thing about it, but not too over the top. All right. I'll buy a half point. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and score this. And Riley, we'll start with you. Okay. What a mandragora. Okay. I'm done. Bye. No. The setting sets costumes. We mentioned it. Really wonderful. It helps the very lacking plot because that's where the problem lies. The premise, the idea is great. 
but the structure of the story not so great and it makes it very difficult because there's a lot of promise here it's just way too basic and generic we're reverting back to old show tropes we should be doing new things there was potential here to do new things so i mean we're back to damseline sarah jane it's not wonderful here but there was potential a better script would have made a huge difference and there were some wonderful shots and scenes to make it worth watching so I'm going to give it six plastic beads being flushed in a toilet with blue water. Ooh, okay. And I'll go next. And I think fundamentally, Riley, I agree with you. This should have been better. I think the fact that the three of us have sat here and talked about how this could have been better structured, I think that says a lot. And that really shouldn't be a thing where three schmucks can talk about how to make a Doctor <laughs> Two episode a lot better. So there are some problems here. And as a season opener, as a result, I don't think it quite works. We've had some really strong season openers the past few years. Terror of the Zygons, Robot, The Time Warrior, The Three Doctors. And this just doesn't stand up to any of those. There are moments I like. I do like the core concept of magic versus science. I do like the setting. The politicking, boring, and even the plot acknowledges that it doesn't matter. Which, in itself, is problematic. You shouldn't have... The story admitting that half of its plot is irrelevant. <laughs> some good performances, some fun concepts. I mean, it's not bad, but I think it says a lot that I know I've seen this story before, but I didn't remember anything about it at all. I may as well have never seen it before. So I think for me, this gets a five and a half craven gutted curs <laughs> out of ten. Julie, let's have you wrap it up. You guys spoke about a lot of things that I obviously agree with, like Riley, the sets the props the costuming i think the acting itself too were all very good whether or not you like the character that's a different story than just the acting itself problems with the plot not leaning into the weirdness that was the first 10 or so minutes of the episode one and just not being very cohesive does lead to some issues through talking about it, I think there's enough good here that I'm going to be a little bit more kind than the two of you. So I'm going to give it 6.5 swirling blue toilet water out of 10. All right. And that averages us out to 6 out of 10, which in terms of season openers is the worst performance since The Dominators. <laughs> wow. Wow. But what can you do? So given how legendary this season is, this feels like it started with a whimper, but that does leave me hopeful that it's only up from here. Keep tuning in, see what we think. We've reached the end of the episode. We will be back next time to say farewell to Sarah Jane Smith in the Hand of Fear. No. But for now, yeah, I know, I know, but we knew it was coming. And for now, as always, thank you so very much for listening. And in the meantime, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Just Stop Being Peasants, was recorded on Sunday the 20th of August 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. 
You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watches4D. And you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, make sure that you go and explore your current space. You never know when you might find a secondary control room tucked away somewhere.